what? The grace drops when that bass drops on that video rolling, doesn't it? Scares me every week. I don't know why. By the end of the 16-week series of the book of Mark, I will be ready for it. Um, yes, it's almost like 16 weeks I'm out. Well, we're, we're almost halfway through. We're on week seven, so you're at a good point. Hey, if you have your book of Mark with you this morning, you can go ahead and open to uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 45, which I believe is on page 40. I don't have mine up here with me. If you're new here today, you don't have one of our books of Mark, we would love to give you one of them. You can just raise up your hand, and one of our ushers will get it to you. It's only the book of Mark with lots of space in it for writing notes on good paper. We believe that the Word of God is powerful, that it has the ability to transform us. So we just want you to have a book of Mark that you can write in you can circle in, you can doodle in if I bore you, whatever, but we just want you to have the ability to have a book of Mark that you can take home and to make your own. Now last week, as we were in chapter 6, what we saw happen was Jesus goes home. He's been doing all of these crazy miracles, and now he goes back to his hometown, and it says that he's unable to do any mighty works there because the people have no faith in him. They actually despise Jesus. They, they're all the people that he played with growing up. It's all the families that watched him and his family. And they actually say, like, hey, isn't this Jesus the carpenter? Like, didn't we, we know his mom, Mary. We know his brothers and sisters. There's no way that this guy can do anything special. And you all have had that. The people from your hometown, they believe in you so much when you're leaving and when you come back, they don't believe you've ever done anything of any significance. And so uh, Jesus actually isn't able to do anything in his hometown. And it's not because he isn't able. It's because of the fact that people have no faith in his ability. See, the way that God works in you is he doesn't just come and force himself upon you. God comes and he's always looking for people who will cooperate with him in the works that he wants to do on the face of this earth. Because his people in his hometown had no faith in his ability to do that, he wasn't able to find people who would cooperate with him. But what he did do was he sent his disciples out and he empowered them with the Holy Spirit. It says he gave them the authority to go out and to drive out demons, to heal people and to preach the gospel. And they come back and all of these incredible miracles have happened and they're telling him about it. What is the difference between the people in his hometown and the disciples? The disciples had faith. The people in his hometown had none. I bet the people in the hometown, like, look what they missed out on. Like, I don't want to miss out on any of the things that God wants to do through me to bless other people because I don't have faith in his ability or I don't have faith in his ability to use me. Now, right after that, then Jesus uses his disciples to feed 5,000 people miraculously. You know the story. There's the 5,000 people they've been teaching all day. The disciples say, send them home. And Jesus says, you feed them. Like, ha ha, good one, Jesus. Now, seriously, send them home. And he says, no, I want you to feed them. Just bring me what you have. And so they find the loaves and they find the fish and they bring it to Jesus and it's not nearly enough. But whatever we give to Jesus in faith, he's able to do a miracle in. And so he blesses it, multiplies it, sends it out, feeds all of the people, 12 baskets left over. Why? Because Jesus had found in the disciples people who were willing to cooperate with him through faith. Now, as soon as this happens, we get into Mark chapter 6, verse 45. And this is, Mark says immediately a whole lot. He's letting us know what's happening. And immediately after that miracle of feeding the 5,000 people, this is what it says. In verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And when he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, 
But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What Jesus does is, right after this incredible miracle happens, he sets the disciples up for failure. And this is why he does it. Now, if Jesus said, go out there and cast out demons and heal the sick and preach the gospel, and I went out there and did it like crazy, and then it came back and Jesus said, feed 5,000 people, and I brought them five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people, you would not be able to fit my head through that door. Like, I'd be like, I am the man of God. Like, look at me. You all be blessed now. Double blessings, triple blessings on you. Like, I would be so full of myself because like, look what God is doing through me. I must be special. And so what Jesus does is he sets them up for failure. All right, you guys have been seeing what it is that you can do with me and you're probably feeling pretty good about it. So now I want you to go out there by yourself. You're all fishermen. This is your trade. This is your profession. You're incredible fishers and sailors. So just go out there, just sail your boat across the lake and I'll meet you over there. And they go out there and the wind comes up. And real quickly, the disciples learn an important lesson. With Jesus, there's nothing that's impossible for you. Absolutely nothing. Without Jesus, there is nothing that is possible for you. Even the things that you're naturally good at, minus the presence of Jesus, you can be unable to do and to accomplish. You wouldn't think that you would need the presence of Jesus to be able to sail your boat across the lake, but Jesus wanted his disciples to know how completely and utterly dependent they were upon his presence to do life, to do ministry, to do all of the things and fulfill all of the purposes for which they had been created and for which they had been called. It all hinged on the presence of God with them. And because of the presence of God in their life, we see them do all sorts of incredible things. We see the miracles. We see the fruitfulness that comes from their life, the, the churches that they planted. We see the way that they operated as apostles. We see all of these incredible things and it all sprang from the place of relationship with God. It all sprang from the, the place of the presence of God with them. But then in chapter 7, we see a contrast to that. We see what happens to us when instead of living our life based out of relationship with Jesus and based with his presence with us here and now. Instead, we try to do it on our own. And what that leads to in Mark chapter 7 is actually dead religion. So in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Now the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. They saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat what is defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. 
For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition, so that, that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called to the people again and said to them, Hear me, all you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, what's happened here in this is as Jesus is going around and doing his ministry and gaining lots of popularity and notoriety, uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes don't like this because they're losing influence and control to Jesus. And so they go around and they just play the role of the critic. They're just watching him, waiting for him to slip up. And this is what always happens. If you do anything good in your life, if you do anything great for God or for society in general, what's going to happen is there will be a few people that will cheer you on and then there will also be a group of people who are always going to come and want to watch you and just wait for you to slip up so they can criticize you. Critics don't add anything to society they don't build anything. They just take joy in tearing down the things that other people try to create. So don't be discouraged by the fact that you have critics. Jesus had critics. You will too. Anytime God's trying to do something miraculous and powerful, there will always be people who, not knowing it, but are influenced by the enemy to come and to criticize and try to stop all of those who are doing what God's called them to do. So Jesus is doing incredible, miraculous thing. And here come the critics. And they're just watching him, they're waiting for him to slip up so that they can pounce on him and try to get all of their influence, all of their power and authority back. And what happens is they notice that as they're eating, some of the disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. And they go, aha, this is it. We found out Jesus is a false prophet, he's an immoral man, they're all defiled people that follow after him. Now, like, that seems pretty extreme. If you eat without washing your hands, it's gross, but it's not a moral issue. Like, it's not like you need to repent of your sins. You're, the flames of hell are looking at your heels, you unhand washer. That's not what's happening. Like, that's not reality, but this is what they're doing. The Pharisees are coming, and this is a big moral issue for them that the disciples aren't washing their hands. This is the gotcha moment. We have found Jesus out. We have uncovered the truth. Nobody should follow him anymore. Now, where would they get that idea? Where they get this from is if you go back into Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21, and I'll read it to you so you don't have to look it up. But this is where they get this idea from. It says, The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a a basin of bronze and its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they do not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. 
It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring through the generations. Now, to help you understand what that means is, as God's led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, now he's revealing himself to them and he's beginning to teach them how to worship him. He gives them instructions for building the tabernacle, uh, which was before the temple. It was like a little mobile temple that they had while they were out in the wilderness. And it was the place where they would come and the, the physical, tangible presence of God resided in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. And so what he tells them is that the way that you approach the presence of God for the priest, this wasn't for everybody, this was for the priest, they would come and that they would wash their hands and they would wash their feet in this basin before they would enter into the place where God's presence was. Now what God was trying to teach them through this was that before you can approach the holy God, you have to have your sinfulness washed away from you. It was a symbol that God was giving them to always remember before I can come into his presence, there has to be a removing of sinfulness from me. I had to be washed. I had to be made pure and clean before I can enter into the presence of God. This doesn't say anything about all Jewish people must do this. This doesn't say anything about the fact that they have to do this before they eat. It doesn't say anything about pots and tins and couches, none of that stuff. This was just for the priest as a way for them to understand something about themselves and to understand something about the way that they relate to God. But what the priests did, not the priests, what the Pharisees did was they came up with all of these other rules that they began to add onto it. And by adding all of these other rules and all of these other regulations onto it, they completely missed out on what it was that God was trying to reveal through the commandment that he had given to the priest in the book of Exodus. When we look at two different groups of people, when you look at the, the disciples and you look at the way that God used them, when you look at the way that, that God was actively moving inside of their hearts, you see that it flowed out of an active, a lively faith that was inside of them. It flowed out of the presence of Jesus. But what the Pharisees did was they had so perverted God's commands about how we approach God that when God himself came to them, they accused him. They used the rule that was supposed to teach us about the holiness of God to become something that they would use to accuse God himself. How does that happen? Like, how do we get so far off on what it is that God's trying to teach us? How do we get so far off on the things that God has spoken to us? It's because of dead religion. Dead religion is the opposite of an act of faith inside of you. Dead religion will always produce that. It will always squelch an active and lively faith inside of you. And the reason for that is because dead religion is disconnected from the presence of God. This is what Jesus said in verse 6. He said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He's saying, listen, all of you Pharisees, you're saying the right things. You look the right way. Other people would look at you and they would think that you are godly people, that you're the ones who are following after me. You're the ones who've got it figured out. But the truth is, you might say one thing with your lips. You might do one thing with your actions. But the reality is that your heart is far from me. And if your heart is far from God, if you are far from the presence of God, then you will always end up going into dead religion. See, the laws that God gave us are good. The laws that God gave us, all of his moral law, it brings life to us. All of God's moral law keeps us from destruction. It's all good. But God's moral law was never meant to be given to us outside of relationship with him. 
Of the Ten Commandments that we have, uh, those are all good commandments, but do you know they were never supposed to be etched on stone and given to the people? The way that God wanted to give his commandments to his people was his own mouth spoken to them in the context of relationship. When Israel's out there in the desert, God says to Moses, assemble all of the people around Mount Sinai and I'm going to come and I'm going to speak to them. And it says that God comes in a dark cloud and there's the sound of trumpets and the sound of thunder and that's all symbolic of a groom coming for his bride, showing the kind of loving and committed relationship that God has with his people. He was coming to the people that he loved to live in relationship with them and it was out of the relationship then that he would speak to us so that he would hear the way that we've been called to live and the way that leads to prosperity prospering inside of our life. But the people got freaked out by the presence of God because what happens, this goes back to Exodus, is that when we're an unclean people, when we're a sinful people, we come into the presence of the holy God, we want to run from him because we become so aware of how unlike him we are. So God comes, his holiness is manifest there on the mountain and the people are freaked out by it. And they tell Moses, don't let God speak to us or we'll die. They're so like, scared by the holiness of God that they don't even want to hear his voice speaking to them. They say, you go talk to God and tell us what he says and then we'll follow all of the things that he says. And so that's what God does. God makes a concession with us. He says, all right, you think that you can you know, live the way I've called you to minus relationship with me? All right, take your best shot at it. And so he gives Moses the Ten Commandments written on stone. That was never the way that we were supposed to hear God. He came to speak to us out of relationship. He came to us in love so that out of love, then we would want to follow after him. And this is how it is for my kids. Uh, my kids are young, and so one of the, the, the laws that daddy has passed down is that you don't hit each other. That's just one of those moral laws we have in our household. Some people might think that's pretty strict parenting, but I think it's a good thing. Like, if we can all agree that that's a good law, you don't hit other people. And here's what they do is because it's a commandment that I've given them, they make sure they don't hit each other when I'm around. But as soon as daddy's not around, what do they do? They hit each other. Why do they do that? Is because it's something that they aren't living out of relationship yet. My goal isn't that my kids grow up not hitting other people or each other because they're afraid that daddy is going to be there watching them and taking away their Kindles or whatever. The goal is that my children, not out of fear of punishment, but out of a loving relationship that they have with me, become obedient to the things that I've spoken to them. I hope that it's someday out of a love that they have for each other that they would never want to harm each other. I hope it's out of a trust that they have for me that's born out of the love that I have for them that eventually they're able to follow after the commandments that we have for living inside of our house. Dad, I don't understand why I can't hit my sister, but I love you. I know you love me, so I'm going to trust you. Dad, I know that I don't understand this, but I have so much of a love for my sister in my heart that I couldn't think of doing anything that would harm her. That's the goal for all of us as parents. We don't want our kids just to follow laws because they're laws that we've given them. We want them to follow laws because they have relationship with us and we've spoken these things to them out of relationship with us and now it's because of love that they wouldn't want to go against us. That's what Jesus wants for us. Jesus says, it's those who love me that obey me. He doesn't say, if you obey me enough, you're eventually going to love me. He says, if you love me, it's going to lead you into a place of obedience. There's a place for willpower because, you know, like Satan's going to continue to tempt us. It's just a part of the natural way that it's going to be until Jesus returns. But the reason why I follow after Jesus, 
the reason why I'm willing to trust him with things I don't understand and things I don't even agree with in scripture that he's called me to is because I know how good he is. It's not because I'm afraid of getting in trouble. It's because I know how good God is. He loves me so much that I can't stand the thought of doing something that's going to grieve his heart. It's because I love him so much that now I'm able to trust him. Jesus, I don't understand this, but if you've called me to live in this way, I know you're not leading me into destruction. I know that the way that you've called me to live, the commands that you have given me, they're for my benefit. It's going to lead me into life. If I disobey you, it's going to lead me into destruction. So Jesus, even when I don't understand, even when it's costly for me to follow after you, I'm going to follow after you and submit myself to you and to everything that you've spoken because I love you. Love is what produces obedience inside of us. The only way that you're going to love God is if you walk with his presence in your life. If you start trying to follow the law of God minus relationship with God, minus the presence of Jesus in your life, then it's going to lead you into dead religion. And this is what dead religion will do, is it will actually lead you to the place where you begin to create the traditions of men. Mark 7, 9 says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your own tradition. What he's saying here is that I gave you a law about washing that was good for you, it was beneficial to you, it brought understanding of the way that you enter into my presence and your need for me to do something inside of your life to clean you and to purify you. But what you've done is because you've separated my law from my presence, you've separated my commands from relationship with me, now you're, you're completely changing it and you're creating your own laws. Now, the Pharisees, they were trying to do good. Like, hey, we want to make sure that we're not getting defiled. We want to make sure that we're honoring God. So we're going to go above and beyond to really go after this thing. Have you ever left your kids in charge? Say, hey, I need you guys to clean up your rooms. Oldest one's in charge. You know what happens? Oldest one starts making a whole bunch of laws. Oldest one starts making a whole bunch of rules about what clean really is or where things really go. Because what happens is, I mean... I didn't say that, you know, you have to fold your underwear diagonally and put it in the drawer, but the oldest kid is going to start making rules about the way that godly people put their underwear away, right? Like, that's what happens because you start going beyond what it was that was spoken, usually out of good motivations, sometimes out of just trying to gain power and control for yourself. But anytime we start moving beyond what it is that God's done, we're really just making our own traditions that we're passing off as the things that God has spoken. This happens all the time. Like worship is one of my favorite things in church because I just love Jesus and I love encountering him in worship. It's also really funny to me because it's one of the most contentious issues in church. And we get real spiritual about it. Uh, the song Reckless Love, I love that song. Corey Asbury, one of the worship leaders at uh, Radiant Church in Kalamazoo, our sending church. If you've listened to any sort of Christian radio in the last like, year, you've heard that song over and over and over again. Powerful song. I love the image of God's love that it presents and it helps draw me into worshiping Jesus more and more. But like anything, there's critics. And so I'm a glutton for punishment. And so I'll always like Google stuff like, Corey Asbury, heretic. Because I love him, but I want to see what other people are saying, right? 
or like reckless love, false or whatever. And like you have all these people are talking about what a horrible song reckless love is because God isn't reckless. It's like, well, it doesn't say God is reckless. It's called poetry. It's using poetry and language to try to communicate something to us. It's like saying, if we had a song, the trees of the field would clap their hands. That's in Psalms, right? That doesn't mean that trees have hands and that they're out there clapping. It's poetry. It's language. It's not saying God is reckless, but what it's saying is that a God who would humble himself and come down to humanity and lay his life down, go to the cross to die for people who would ultimately reject him, that looks like a reckless love to me. And so I was reading one of the, the people who was talking about what a horrible song it is and how horrible of a person Corey is. And then this is how I ended it. See, this is what happens when we get away from using the organ in the church. And I'm like, oh, great. Like, <laughs> it's the slippery slope of abandoning the organ. And so here's what happened. This person created their own tradition that the organ is the only way that we can worship Jesus. All other instruments are horrible and false. And what it was was a preference. You like organ. There's nothing wrong with liking organ. It's all right, I guess. But it's not God's instrument. It's not that drums and guitars and, you know, like tracks and EDM stuff is evil. That's not. But what's happened is they made their own tradition of men. And what I love is if you read any history, when the, when the organ was introduced into the church, people flipped out. Like, this devil's pipe's coming into our churches. This is a slippery slope. Like, like, we just keep making our own traditions again and again that go beyond what it was that God ever actually spoke to us. Hats in church. I might strike close to home for some of you. I grew up in a little Methodist church, and it was really hard to get my friends to come to church to me because I didn't even like going to church, but I knew they needed Jesus, so, like, come to church, right? I'm working on one friend for a long time. And he comes into the church, and he's wearing a baseball cap. And he comes in, and someone in the church comes up, flips the cap off of his head, and begins to scold him about wearing a hat in church. Can you tell me where in the scripture it says that you can't wear a baseball cap in church? That's a tradition that we made. You know why? Because culturally, removing our hats is a cultural sign of honor and respect. That's a part of the culture that we live in. It became a tradition that we formed. That wasn't God's command. It was a tradition that we formed. And so when some kid that doesn't know Jesus or love him comes into church because someone's been praying for him and investing in him and working on him for a long time and you come up and flip the head off of him and begin to scold him about it, you know who didn't make a decision to follow Jesus that day? My friend. You know who never came back to church again? My friend. Why? Because we upheld a tradition of man over the actual commands of God. What happens is when we separate God's commands from a relationship with him, we start making our own traditions. And when we start making our own traditions and holding other people to it, we start driving from the house of God the people who are on the heart of God. It's fine to have your own convictions. It's fine to have your own preferences. I have preferences for music. If you think I like every song we do, like guess again. You don't even like every song we do. It's not about my preferences. I'm sure, I'm in my 30s now. When I'm in my 40s or 50s, I'll probably hate every song we do. <laughs> like, what are these kids who don't even play instruments anymore? Whatever. And I can make a tradition that says that, you know, synthesizers are of the devil and we've got to stick to electric guitar. 
But that's going beyond what Jesus ever said. I'm just going to focus on praising Jesus. I'm not going to create traditions that I hold other people to. They're going to impede the move of God in their life. Here's a big one. Alcohol. You know, it doesn't say in the Bible anywhere that you can't drink. In fact, Jesus turned water into wine. And there's people who are, you know, anti-alcohol who will say, well, it was alcohol-free juice. Like, no, it doesn't say that. It says that Jesus made the best wine for that wedding. It was the good stuff. God does say don't get drunk. That's a moral thing. That's a command of God. He says don't get drunk because it leads you into destruction and it leads you away from me and leads you to all kinds of horrible decisions and destruction in your life. But it doesn't say that you can't drink. That's a tradition that we've made up. That's a tradition that we've put on other people. Now, I personally don't drink because when I was a kid, I didn't drink. Because uh, like, I was like, I can't. The cops are going to arrest me. I'm going to go to hell. Like, whatever. Like, there's all this fear stuff involved in it. So all my other friends were acquiring a taste for alcohol at 16 and 17 years of age. Like, I was drinking my alcohol-free grape juice like the Baptist said Jesus made. So now I'm an adult. I'm like 21. I'm going to try a drink. I'm like, oh, God, it's, it's horrible because I just never developed the taste for it. And I have a really addictive personality, so it's my own conviction that I'm not going to do it because I'm afraid of what it would lead me into. But I can't make that a tradition for anybody else. When I do that, what I'm doing is I'm actually elevating myself over God. God, I know you made your rules, but let me make them a little bit better. God, you didn't quite go far enough on this one. This is what I'm really concerned about. And so whatever is our pet peeve or whatever we love so much, we're not beginning to make traditions of men that we hold other people to and it goes beyond the heart of God. And the reason why we do that is because we become separated from the person of God in relationship with him to his commands that he's given to us. And when we do that, uh, dead religion always misses the heart of God. Every single time. So the guy that flipped the head off of my friend, and he missed the heart of God on that. He missed the heart of God on it. The Pharisees, in making everybody have to go through these rituals, was they had to have the water at the right temperature to wash their hands before they ate, had to be the right things, had to sit on the right couch, had to use the right kind of soap. It was all of these rules that they made up. And in doing all of that, they completely missed God's heart behind what it was that he'd commanded and spoken to them. This is what... Jesus says in verses 10 through 13, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do any, uh, anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. What Corbin was, was meaning that I'm going to give everything to God. And that's great. Like if God speaks and moves on your heart to give everything to him, then you better give everything to him. But what the Pharisees were doing was just saying, hey, you need to give everything to God and not be able to take care of your parents anymore because the money and the food and provision you were going to use to care for your family, I want you to give all of that to God. It's like a high-pressure kind of sales thing that they did to them. So they come and they give everything to God and now they're not able to provide for their parents. That was a tradition they made up that went beyond what it was that God ever spoke. And on top of that, the tradition that they made actually went directly against what it was that God had spoken. God said, honor your father and your mother. If you don't do this, you deserve death. Like, ouch. I am so grateful for the cross of Christ and the new covenant that we live in. 
But even in the New Testament, this is what it says. It says that if you don't take care of your family, that you're worse than an unbeliever. The Pharisees, by the traditions that they made, were moving the people that they were supposed to lead into a place of where they were doing something that deserved death by not taking care of their parents and put them in the place where they were being forced to live as someone who was worse than an unbeliever because of the way they were neglecting their family. All because of the traditions that we make up. The traditions that we make up that completely miss the heart of God in all of that. Our traditions will oftentimes contradict what it is that God has spoken to us. And they'll seem so good to us. But it's always because we remove ourselves from relationship with God. And when we do that, we don't understand the context of his command spoken to us. We begin to make our own traditions that we hand down to other people that are always going to miss the heart of God. And then finally, dead religion answers the wrong question. It's good. Like What the Pharisees are doing is they're trying to answer this question of what is it that we need to do so that we remain undefiled? Like We live in a world, our culture is not godly. We weren't born into a godly culture. There's no such thing in this world as a godly country or a godly culture. That's, that's all myth that countries use for propaganda and all that kind of stuff. This world is nothing like the kingdom of God. It's nothing like the kingdom that we have been adopted into by bending our knee to Jesus. And it is important that we now live out the kingdom of God in our life, in our culture, that we say we're, we live here, but our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we're going. That's the life that we're going to live out. That's the culture that we're going to live out here. And I want to remain undefiled. I want to walk away from the way that I used to live. And I want to remain undefiled, holy, set apart for God and for his purposes and his plans inside of my life. That's a good desire. But it's not the right question. And in fact, they answered that question wrong. They thought the way that you remain undefiled and holy and set apart for God was by washing your hands before you ate. That's a bad answer to the wrong question. The real question, or the real problem, is that they were already defiled. My daughter, my, my nine-month-old, I forgot which one, this week she ate paint. Like she got my, my son's little paint kit out, had like black paint all over like her mouth, her face, body, everywhere. And so my question wasn't, my, my first question was, okay, how do, I, how do I keep her from getting dirty? That wasn't the problem that I had. The question was, how do I get her clean? After she gets clean, I'll start working on ways to keep her from getting dirty again. But until that point, I can leave her dirty and figure out ways to keep her from getting more dirty, but that does absolutely no good. The problem is that she was dirty and she needed to be made clean. The problem the Pharisees had wasn't that they needed to remain undefiled. The problem that they had was that they were defiled and they needed to be clean. See, what God was showing us with the law about priest washing before they went into his presence was that every single one of us has been stained by sin. Every single one of us has been separated from God because of our sin. That we needed someone who could come and who could clean us. We needed someone who could come and remove our sin from us so that we could enter into the presence of God and then work on living an undefiled life by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. But they missed out on that. Jesus was the answer to the question that they weren't asking. And Jesus is the answer to the question that we have today. But dead religion will always make you ask the wrong question. 
Dead religion will always make you miss out on what we really need, always make you miss out on what other people really need. Listen, I'm all for standing for truth. We need to do that. I believe everything in the Bible. I believe God's commands. I believe they're beautiful. I believe they bring life. I believe they keep us from destruction. I believe that we prosper when we follow after God's commands. But what my neighbor that's living far from God needs to do isn't like, hey, you just need to like stop being sexually immoral. Then your life is going to be great. No, that's not the big issue. Yeah, do they need to stop being sexually immoral? Absolutely. Hey, drunk, like you need to stop being addicted. Yeah, absolutely. But that's not the big issue right now. You know what the issue is? Is that they need Jesus to come and to make them clean. When we focus on all of these other things that they need to do, we're asking the wrong question. That's what dead religion leads us to, is to try to fix all of these other outside parameters. What Jesus wants to do is he wants to come and be the one who makes us clean so that we can enter into his presence. When we enter into the presence of God, now we begin to experience his love. When we begin to experience his love, we begin to put our faith and our trust in him so that now we're going to become obedient to him because of the love that we have for him. When we yell at the world around us and say, stop being greedy. Well, yeah, but you can't yell at someone enough or tell them to stop being greedy enough to change their heart. People will stop being greedy when they encounter the love of Jesus. When we focus on setting up a divine encounter where they begin to see how beautiful God is and how great his love is for them. Dead religion is going to tell them to fix all the external stuff that we can see but faith wants to come and to cause faith to be put in Jesus Christ who's able to wash all of the sin from their heart. Faith wants to come and to develop relationship with God so that now out of a love for him, they walk away from the life that they used to be living and walk into obedience because of the love they have for God, because of the trust that they have in God. That's faith. That's faith that produces life. But dead religion always asks the wrong question. And maybe this morning, you're here and, and you've been trying to, to fix yourself up and you've been trying to make yourself right with God, but you've been doing it absent relationship with Jesus. That's dead religion and it'll never lead you anywhere. Because you can't change yourself. You can't wash yourself and make yourself right. Only Jesus can do that. He's the answer to the question, to the right question. And when you come before him because of an encounter with his love and say, Jesus, because of your goodness, because I've seen how great your love is for me, that you would go to the cross and die for me. Now I follow you. And as these commands that God is speaking to you now take on the context of relationship, and the beauty of being spoken to you by your Father who loves you. Now you'll be able to start walking in the way following after him. You'll be able to start walking away from all of the sin issues that were ensnaring you, all of the things that you tried to overcome on your own, but it was just through dead religion. Because Jesus has the power to change you. And Jesus has the power to captivate your heart and to make it so that you're not obeying him, but you're loving him. And the love is going to produce the obedience inside of your life. Every single one of us were born into dead religion. Every single one of us were born into a moral code that we were trying to follow that was given to us by our parents, that was given to us by our culture. And when I was following a moral code, it led me to being morally bankrupt. When I was trying to follow a moral code, it led me to great frustration, it led me to brokenness, to emptiness, 
it led me to destruction. But when I started following the God who loves me, it led me to obedience to every word that he's spoken. And it became a delight and a joy to follow after him. That doesn't mean it was easy. Every time you decide you're going to walk away from the way you've been living to walk into obedience with Jesus because of your love for him, it's tough. It absolutely is hard. But it's so worth it every single time. Because every time you begin to obey more fully out of love, you're going to walk into more of God's blessing. You're going to be closer to Jesus, more overwhelmed by his love and his goodness in your life. We have a God that you can trust. Even when you don't understand, even when you don't agree with it, Jesus, I don't know why you'd want me to give this up. Jesus, I don't know why you'd want me to do this instead. But Jesus, because you're good, because I know you love me, I'm willing to trust you with that. That's an obedience that's born out of faith. That's an obedience that's born out of love. That's the obedience that God created us to live out. But as long as you try to keep the way that you live separate from relationship with God, it'll always be a dead religion. It'll always cause you to create your own traditions that you'll follow that will miss the heart of God and will keep you asking the wrong questions. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, this morning I pray that you would come and you would begin to demonstrate and to convict all of our hearts of your great love for us. For some of you, there was a moment and there was a time where you're just overwhelmed by God's love for you. You've become distracted. Maybe you've wandered. Jesus is calling you back to that. He's stirring up the memory of that love that you experienced. He's calling you back. You haven't disqualified yourself from that love. He hasn't stopped loving you. He'll never stop loving you. The enemy might be telling you that it can't be that way again or that you can't experience God's love like that, but it's a lie. In the parable of the prodigal son, the father was waiting. The father was looking. In the moment the son came back home, it says the father ran out to greet him. Didn't even make the son come all the way home. The father ran out to greet the son and put a ring and a robe on him. Reaffirming identity and reaffirming love and blessing. That's what Jesus is calling you to. God is running to meet you as you turn back towards him. That's how great his love is for you. He doesn't want you to live according to a moral code anymore. He wants you to live out of love. He wants you to live out of hearing his voice speaking to you. He wants you to become obedient, not to what others have created for you, not even what you've created for yourself. He wants you to become obedient to his good commands that he's given you because of his great love for you, but he wants you to do it in the context of relationship with him and only in relationship with him. Maybe some of you this morning, you realize that you've created a lot of traditions that have missed the heart of God. Jesus is calling you to repent of that. 
Maybe for some of you, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, but this morning you're encountering the goodness and the love of God and you hear him speaking to you and calling to you. It says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, that you will be saved, that you will begin this new life with him. You will be adopted into this family as a daughter or as a son of God. All it takes is saying, Jesus, I believe. I believe you're God. I believe you forgave my sins on the cross. I believe your death and resurrection brought me life. From this day forward, I'm following after you. Would you continue to show me how much you love me? Would I know you so deeply? I want to walk every moment of the rest of my life with you, no turning back. Jesus, over every heart here, would you continue to show us your love? leading us to repentance, leading us to obedience, leading us to taking joy in you and everything that you've spoken over us. And Jesus and Radiant Church, we'd be a house where we tear down every tradition of man so that we can come back to the heart of the Father and to the words that you've spoken over us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm my prayer partners come forward. They're going to be in the front on the outsides here. If there's anything we can pray with you about, we would love to pray with you. And this morning, if you made a first-time decision to follow Jesus or you've been away from him and you decided that you want to walk with him again, uh, on the communication card on the back of it, there's a place where you can just check and say that you made a first-time decision or a decision to recommit your life. I just have a little video I want to, I want to shoot you uh, just as a way to encourage you and see if there's anything that we can do for you. We believe that a decision to follow Jesus is best walked out in community with other people. So we just want to welcome you into the family and encourage you to do everything that we can to help you love Jesus more and more. So uh, you can check that off and turn in at the information center and uh, we'll, we'll get in touch with you with that little video. Uh, for all of you dads that are here today, we love you. We're so grateful for you. Uh, yeah, dads are awesome. I'm not just saying that because I am one, but I am. But I'm so grateful for dads and the way that you model the heart of the father. Some of you, you're here today and you had a bad dad and it was really damaging and hurtful to you, well, here's what I want you to be encouraging is that even though your earthly dad might have failed you, you have a heavenly father who loves you and who will never fail you. And so in honor of fathers, uh, we have root beer and bacon in the cafe for everybody. We want full man mode on that. And so go out there, enjoy some bacon and root beer, and we will see you all next week. Come, let us pray for you. God bless.